This week on the Dregzine Podcast, NHRA legend Frank Holly joins us to talk about how he got behind the wheel of the Chi-Town Hustler, his rise through the drag racing ranks, and what it took to get his drag racing school started. So, pull those belts tight, get ready to put in the beans. The Dragzine Podcast starts now. Welcome everybody to this week's episode of the Dragzine Podcast. I'm your host, Senior Associate Editor Brian Wagner. Frank Hawley stops by this week and we get to kind of hear some of his old school tales about how he got into the sport and kind of really how how his career was a, a true Cinderella story. It's a pretty fascinating to hear and pretty inspiring. So without further ado, let's get this drag racing party started. All right. My guest this week on the Drag Zine podcast is drag racing legend Frank Hawley. What's going on, Frank? Well, it is a beautiful, warm, sunny day here in Florida. And uh, <clears throat> I'm just uh, just hanging out by the water, enjoying myself this afternoon. How about you? Yeah, You're working. <laughs> yeah, yeah. You know, I, I don't mind working when I when I'm looking at uh, tomorrow. I get to go out to the Big Jig Speed Week thing out here at National Trail Raceway and uh, get to take in my favorite pastime and hobby, and that's uh, watching stock and super stock cars do awesome things. So uh, I'm definitely pumped about going to work tomorrow for sure. Well, that's very cool. We're we're actually I'm I'm getting on an airplane Monday and, and flying to Columbus because we're going to be there next week as well. So oh, nice. Uh, it's a uh, it's always fun to uh, come up to trails. That's definitely one of those tracks that uh, it has a lot of history to it for a lot of different people, a lot of different reasons for sure. And it's definitely cool to see it back up on the uh, on the upswing once again. Yeah, well, J- Jay Livingston um, <clears throat> is is running the facility now, and he's been doing a bang up job. Uh, and, um, you know, I, I, uh, I was started racing, uh, in the middle seventies at, uh, at, at Columbus. So, uh, I, my, my history goes way back with that facility. What's crazy is you see the new owners of the track, like they have the radios on and they are front and center doing stuff. I mean, I've seen, you know, Jason there, he's on the tractor, dragging the track, helping with cleanups. I've seen Jay out doing stuff on the track. I mean, they are, to me, that's one of the greatest things is when you see an ownership of a drag strip, that's that hands-on. That's to me, that's like the quality mark of a good, uh, a good facility. Well, and, and I think, uh, every place I go, I mean, I, I just actually, uh, not too long ago, earlier today, was talking with my friend Bill Bader from from Norwalk, and uh, you know, people like that, uh, the Bandemir family, the, the folks that run the track, they can they can uh, run Compulink, they can uh, they know how to prep the track, uh, they they know how to do the gate. They just, in other words, just like the captain of a ship, um, uh, the captain needs to know how everything uh, on the entire ship operates. And, and that's the kind of folks they are. So uh, I, I think that's you see good, successful racetracks run by by people that, that have done it all and can do it all. Oh, yeah. And, you know, with the Bader family, you know, going to Norwalk to me is like going home. You know, the, you always see them working hard there. It's a family operation. And that's like I, I tell people that I hold tracks accountable to the Norwalk. You know, it's Summit Motorsports Park, but I call it, Nor, you know, the, the Norwalk standard. You know, you get smiles yep. when you go through the gate and just the whole experience experience is awesome there yeah they've uh you know they they have uh uh i i i've always said that the the two baiters and bandemirs are, are probably t- not that there aren't a lot of good track promoters but they've always been kind of the 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 gold standard i think for how to take a, a a privately owned facility, get involved in the community, get, get racer support, get fan support and, and, uh, you know, do do a fantastic job. So every time I get a chance to talk to folks like that, I, I've always got a lot of questions because even though I've spent my whole career in racing, um, they're, they're the people that, that understand the business side of it. And, uh, they, they certainly, uh, they do a great job. Here's a question for you. I want to get your take on this since, you know, you're, you're old school. You've been around for a while compared to the tracks, you know, back in the sixties and seventies to now, you know, what's it like for you to see the big change? Cause it, you know, it's almost gone from like prehistoric medieval scary to like state of the art, you know, what's it like to kind of see those, those level of changes in safety in the facilities? Well, uh, you know, it's, it's like, <clears throat> 
airbags in cars yeah. <laughs> and seat belts and and you know it's it's a it's an evolution as you go you know along through the sport um and um you know the facilities now are absolutely amazing but uh when uh when i started uh you know as you said it wasn't wasn't so much like that uh i i started the old front motor top fuel dragster and and you can't see out of those things. I mean, you, you can't see forward because you're looking at the back of the blower and, and it, it smokes the tires or it's got header flames out. So you can't see sideways. And then the tracks, a lot of them didn't have, they not only didn't they have concrete walls that are painted white, they didn't even have steel guardrail. We ran on tracks that was asphalt and, and then it just goes to grass. And when you're driving one of those things at 200 mile an hour at night, the grass and the asphalt looks exactly the same color. So you literally don't know where you are. And, uh, you know, now, uh, you know, the last several years here, we've, the, the no prep things popular and, uh, you know, everybody, well, no prep races. You ought to see what it's like to drive, you know, at a no prep race. That's my God. We drove nitro funny cars. There wasn't any prep. I mean, they, they didn't have any VHT. It was like a racetrack and you just, there you go. You just run on it. They'd have an oil down. They would throw some rice haul ash out, run the sweeper through it. It looked like it snowed in your lane. And then they'd say, yep, it's good. Start it up. <laughs> and so when, when you get, when, when that's your, your, your upbringing, uh, and, and then you, you start to see what we've got now. Um, I can't imagine there's any racers anywhere that would complain about the, the, the modern day facilities, you know, they're just, they're just, uh, they don't have enough history to appreciate how good the tracks are now. That was the exact answer I was hoping for on so many levels because that, that sums up a lot of stuff. And I, I love looking at, like, watching the old videos of, you know, India always sticks out because, you know, the way that facility looks now to the way it used to look was, yeah, there were no guardrails. Then there were some, like, metal single arm codes, and, you know, we yep. kind of go on from there. And that, to me, is just... That's insane to think that, you know, you guys used to race top fuelers, you know, on tracks with no guardrails. That's 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 mind blowing. Well, um, and, and actually, yeah. Well, looking back, like if, if, if you said to me now, Frank, would you he, it, this is kind of weird. Maybe maybe people will understand. It, but there's a part of me that, that looks back at that that kind of wild, wild west thing and thinks, wow, that was crazy. You, you know, it was, it was, it was, it, there was something I liked about that just unlawful, crazy, wild, wild west approach. And yet, if you ask me now, would you like to go back to that? I'd say, absolutely not. <laughs> <laughs> you know, so it's, I'm, 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 I don't know if that makes any sense, but I'm a little divided. There was something really cool about it. And yet now, you know, with a little more maturity and the fact that I made it a few decades uh, without any great injuries, I think, nah, I don't think that's something we should do again. With age comes wisdom, right? Well, yeah. Yeah. And and vulnerability and some humility and a whole bunch of stuff uh, comes with age, I think. Yeah. Oh, yeah. I, I can definitely see where you're coming from there. We're like, yeah, that was awesome, but I would never do that again because I know how lucky I was that I never got hurt. Yeah. Yeah. And yeah. So that's that's kind of how how it's been for me. Yeah. Like I said, I, I love, you know, nostalgia racing that we have nowadays. But, you know, a lot of those are just there are a lot of updated cars because, again, it comes back to if you look at like old top fuel dragsters and funny cars, they they it's terrifying to think that we didn't honestly lose more people running those cars. Well, and I mean, the 60s and 70s, they actually did. I mean, they, they, had, they had a lot of fatalities. If you go back and there's some stuff online you can find and and, uh, you know, there, there, there were a lot of people drivers lost uh but i i'm kind of a personal responsibility sort of guy that's i'm, I'm fundamentally like that and uh, uh you know it, it was nobody ever told us that we had to, to build one of those cars and get in it and drive it down the track it's something we chose to do so um and and there was if if you asked a whole bunch of guys that race back then and race now and they said, uh, 
were there things that were better then? Everybody would say, yeah, there was stuff that was better. And, and it's, it's no one's fault. And what was better is uh, it's just the cost of stuff. And, and, and again, that's not, that's not the manufacturer's fault. That's not the racetrack's fault. That's not the association's fault. It just is. And, and um, uh, you used to be able to get, uh, you know, two or three guys together that had good jobs and the money, you know, they had left over, they could have a top fuel dragster and, and you'd go to India and have 60, 70 cars. Um, and, and it was, it was, it was more personal. Um, there was more interaction between the drivers and the teams. Um, and, and, and all that changed. Um, now, now, now that I've said that, uh, is, is it better? Is it faster? Is it safer? Are, are the racetracks bigger? Are the crowds bigger? Do we have more TV than we used to have? Yes. So, um, I, I don't know if you could ever blend those two together. It's, it's kind of like two different worlds. Uh, and, um, and here we are today. You know, I kind of wonder sometimes, it's always awe-inspiring to see those, you know, pictures of, you know, kind of like the golden-ish area of drag racing when you'd see, you know, the stands and, the you know, the the fence line completely packed out. And, it, you know, it was a different time. You know, we didn't have, you know, computers in our pockets to constantly entertain us. But I wonder, too, at the same time, if there was a lot of people that showed up for that just because it was like, you know, watching an evil Knievel jump. It was like so new, scary, fun, exciting, that whole outlaw thing, like you said, that that's what really drew the fans in to check it out. Yeah, you know, I uh... – and, and I've been asked this before, you know, over my career, uh, do you think that the race fans show up to see somebody crash? And uh, first, I hope not. Um, um, but I think with them understanding that there's a risk, in other words, the viewer or the audience, that there's a risk that that that's is is got to be somewhat exciting for them uh, I, I mean if if you just look at you know where we're promoting a big race and we you know show the bodies blowing off the of funny cars um uh, why are we showing that <laughs> why don't we just show a a, a close finish of pro stock cars on on the on the commercial so you know, I, I undoubtedly there's people that, uh, and, and again, I don't think they want to see anybody hurt, but they, they don't want such a sterile sport that they don't feel that, ah, this is pretty edgy. Something bad might happen. I don't want it to, but boy, I'm going to watch and see. And, and uh, anyway, it's, I, I don't know if, if I'm too vague on that or not oh no it totally makes sense you got to have that mixture of you know you can't have all boring a to b passes you know but you can't have everybody upside down on fire like john force you need that little bit of an edge of where you know you know you get the like the in the circus the ooze and the ahs of like the trapeze artists and stuff like that you know i totally totally agree yeah yeah now, looking back on it, you know, in, in your memories, is there anything that sticks out, you know, story-wise as far as, you know, back in those old-school outlaw days of something that happened back then that would never, ever be able to happen in the modern NHRA world? Well, I, I don't know if there's anything really uh, specific. I just um, – <clears throat> um, so uh, a short little history. I I grew up on, on a farm in Canada, and um, – <clears throat> My, I had four older sisters, and uh, it was kind of the muscle car era, and all their my sisters' boyfriends had fast cars, and so that's how I got introduced to drag racing in one of my first races when I was nine, and I thought, wow, this is the coolest thing I've ever seen, and from that time on, uh, I was just uh, fixated with the sport. I, I remember I still have my first ever uh, racing magazine I bought. It was, uh, I think it was 66. I, I still have it, it. It was an overhead shot of a Rubiro Fox and holding top fuel car, smoking the tires, leaving the starting line at Bakersfield. And uh, it was on a newsstand. It was Carcraft. And it, it uh, I asked my mom if we could, if, if I could buy that magazine. She looked and she said, Oh my God, it's 25 cents. She said, you know, we'll, we'll get you a magazine, but we're not buying one of these every week. And, and so that, that was kind of my humble beginnings. And, and, uh, 
and I never looked back. I, 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 there was never anything I wanted to do. And fortunately through a lot of hard work and, and uh, a lot of meeting the right people at the right time, I was able to, you know, get to a point where I, I got, uh, I, I got to drive some really good cars, made a living, started our racing school and, and have, uh, you, you know, and enjoyed a good living for myself and my family over the years. But, um, what, what I think we're, everybody's looking for now is that first generation racer where, um, you know, in other words, the market's not vertical where you're in racing because your parents were in racing, which is good. Don't get me wrong. But what, what everybody's after is somebody that, you know, a, a young person that gets involved in motorsports, And I'm saying that in general, uh, and, and drag racing specifically, that is the first one in their family, and 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 that's that, that that's like the roots growing out, and that's really what everybody's trying to do. And I think we've got to, you know, present a lot of different, new, and exciting things uh, to uh, to get those folks involved. Oh yeah, I totally agree that that's bringing in those those first time people. And I think, you know, something I've noticed is again the street outlaw craze has really done that. And I've seen that firsthand because when I when they started doing the No Prep King series, I got to go to one of the f- the first series of events. Okay. And there were several people that flats, you know, just you, as a media person, you take the the temperature of the people there, you ask questions sure. to help tell the story when you write it. And there was a lot of people that told me this is the first time they'd ever been to a drag strip, and they were like, "This is awesome, I'm hooked," you know. They they were there now. So I've got a question for you. This was. Uh, after the TV series was was running, yeah, yeah, the, the the series was running, and then they came out with the No Prep Kings, which is right, right. kind of like the traveling road show to drag strips. And they'd sure. seen it on TV multiple times. They'd never been to a drag strip, and it came to their local town. And I'm at Beach Bend Raceway, and I've seen yeah. that place packed out for LS Fest. You know, with all the stands sure. full. At this event, the stands were full, and they were two to three people deep the entire length of the track, and the hillside was full. It was insane, and there were so many people there that they'd never been to a drag race before, and they were just they were enamored by it. So your take on that is that they enjoyed it and they might come back? Oh, absolutely. They there were a lot of the people flat said that like you know I'm gonna come back and check you know I didn't even there was one person I remember it was a a couple with a young son and they said I didn't even know this place existed and I've lived here almost my whole life I'm like yeah all right you know there you go and yeah. and it's bringing those people in and then you know you, you get them in the door that way and then they start you know they fall down the rabbit hole and they see what's this nitro stuff all about and then it's like their whole world is gonna change because then they want to go to a national event and see you know, what happens there and experience those cars. Yeah. I, I'm, I'm a believer in the rising tides, you know, float all boats. So I think that anytime, you know, and, and as I said earlier in motorsports in general, we create an interest in motorsports, uh, whether it's, it's road racing or oval track racing or, or, or whatever, uh, that somehow that has, some effect on on drag racing and, and just motors the manufacturers and 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 uh you know websites and magazines and and just uh, so I, I i try and do everything i can to get people to look at motorsports and and again drag racing in particular and and uh and and let them see that they that, you know there, there's other things other than the stick and ball sports and and we have a pretty good time over here, and maybe you'd like to join us. Oh yeah, I, I love anything loud, fast, and dangerous. The only, the only sport that I haven't experienced and been to, well, two. I haven't been to a NASCAR like an official NASCAR race yet, and I haven't been to a motocross event. But I've been to about everything else possible. And to me, it's it's about that experience of going to the track, and you know the the sights, the sounds, the smells, you know the noise. And that's one of the things with drag racing is that it's definitely by far out of everything I've been to, it is the best in-person experience in motorsports. Yeah, it's it's visceral. I mean, it it uh, it hits all of your senses when you're just standing in the midway and they warm up the nitro cars and you can't stand the fumes. You have to walk away. You don't get that anywhere else. No. <laughs> and your chest uh, just vibrating when the fuel cars leave the start line and and you know the 
the proximity you have to the competitors. And, and, uh, I, I, like I said, when I was nine years old, I got hooked and, uh, and, and I have been, been ever since. So, uh, you know, we do, we do our best to try and introduce as many people, uh, to the sport as we can. With the radio tire team that I work for, you know, it's funny. You see people that have never been around drag racing very much. They'll kind of cautiously look at the back of our pit. And they're like, can we come in? We're like, sure, come on in. You know, they'll ask questions. You know, they might have a young child with them kind of poking around the car and the kid's trying to climb in the car and they're like, well, can you sit in the car? We're like, yeah. And the driver's always like, he can't break anything any worse than I already have. So, you know, just, that's funny. He'll, he'll just set him in the car and the kids love it. We've had parents, adults sit in the cars and it's, it's being able to make the memories like that. You know, I, and even with my street car, I've had people ask me questions like, well, can I sit in your car? I'm like, absolutely jump on in you know enjoy it that's you know sure that's what you need to do yeah. now I, I like i was telling you i did a little was reading up about your, your history with the shy town hustler and we'll get into that more later but one of the things i read in the article was kind of like it, it talked about what you were doing before you drove the shy town hustler and you were living in your truck in socal <laughs> how did that come about you know what did you do to get you to that point well to to, to back up um, a little bit, so that sounds like the bottom of the barrel, but to back up a little bit, um, we, we were going, to, before I ever had a driver's license, we were going to the drag strip. My parents didn't have any money to speak of, and it cost $3 to get into the drags, and, and uh, I remember uh, my mom saying, well, we, we can't afford this, and I can't afford to go with you, and um, uh, but I'll, you know, if there's a big show, meaning, you know, just a match race between a couple Dino Don Nicholson and somebody else, uh, you know, maybe we could go once in a while, but, uh, and she would give me the $3 and, and make a, a lunch in a paper bag and give it to me and drop me off at the pit gate. And I'm 10 and say, you know, you've got to be back here so I can pick you up at five o'clock. I don't care if they ran the final or not. And let me go. And I'm just saying today, somebody would call child services and, and, and her thought was, what, there's a bunch of racers. How, you're not going to get in trouble there. And so fast forward, I got to know a lot of the racers just from who's that kid hanging around every week. And then, uh, we kind of a funny story, uh, getting to know the racers, my dad and I would, would go visit them in our hometown and just stop by their shops and talk to them during the week. And one of them said, uh, uh, well, you know, you can't afford to go to the racetrack with the kid all the time. You, they've got, uh, um, they need a photographer over at, at the local drag strip and you ought to go over there and, and see if you can get the job as a photographer. My dad said, we're not photographers. And, and this guy said, well, they don't know that. And so we went over and applied for jobs as photographers and, uh, and we got hired. So they paid us $25 a day to come and take pictures. So instead of paying $3 to get in, we were being paid $25 to come. And, uh, then we had to buy a camera and we bought a little Yashica 35 millimeter was my first camera. And we had to get pictures and, um, and then write a story and send them out to the local trade papers and newspapers in, in Southern Ontario, uh, each, each night. And so we build a little dark room down in the basement. And so we would go shoot the races, come back, stay up, uh, uh, develop all the, the film, develop the pictures, put them in a little five by seven envelopes. I would write a story about the races uh, and then we would send them out and, and that's how we got started to get in the racetrack without paying for it. And, um, I actually had a three page article published in hot rod magazine. It was on pro stock driver, Barry Poole had uh, three or four pictures, three page story, got paid $75 for it when I was 13 years old. And I thought, wow, this is, this is like hitting the lottery. So, uh, turned 16, um, and, and, the same guy that got us the, the, the photography job said, Hey, you need to buy that kid a race car and see if, um, see if he wants to really be a driver or not. And so we bought an old front motor top fuel car. We knew nothing about it. Didn't know how to take a spark plug in and out. 
and and uh, got a friend of ours to help us, and that's what I started in, which I would recommend to nobody. <laughs> you don't ever, ever, ever do this. And so we were on fire every week. We were the guys oiling the track. I would actually go back to high school with bandages on my arms and hands from being burnt on the weekend, and uh, somehow – that was like a badge of honor uh, and, and uh, transition forward a few years. We were racing with a group out of Chicago called the UDRA. And they also had an alcohol funny car group. And we looked over and said, wow, those guys are racing for about the same amount of money. We are, they race more often and we're on fire and they're just cooking hot dogs. Uh, <laughs> this, this alcohol funny car thing looks good. So we ended up selling our dragster stuff, bought uh, an alcohol funny car, transitioned through a few years, ended up buying a car uh, from Kent Beanie, was really fast, won a lot of races at the UDRA deal, uh, pretty successful, qualified at NHRA national events. Uh, I crashed the car. Uh, we were virtually running out of money. Um, we couldn't afford to put the car back together. And my parents had a second mortgage on the house to pay for all my junk. And they said, that's it. We're done. We can't help you anymore. So I said, I'm going to go to California and get a job. Uh, so that that's, brings us up to your question. So I jumped in my pickup truck, got a suitcase, went to California, had no place to stay. A friend of mine uh, had a girlfriend out there, and I slept in my truck in the parking lot where her apartment was and she didn't like me for some reason. So she didn't know I was there and I would go in and shower each day. And I went around looking for a job at all the big teams. And, and I clearly wasn't one of the guys, uh, most of these big teams, I'd, I'd only had pictures of them on my wall. I never met them. And, but they had heard about me from my alcohol racing and, um, and, what I found out is, is they'd say, well, we, we don't need a driver. We don't want a driver. We, you, you know, I said, no, 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 I'm, I, I, I don't, I don't want to drive. I just want to work on your car. I can do the bottom end, the clutch, the rear end. I can grease your truck, drive your truck. I can wax it. I just need a job. And, and each one of them uh, would look at me and say, uh, you're saying that, but you don't really mean it because the first time you get a chance to go drive a car, you're going to leave us. You're going to quit and go drive a car. And I would say to them, absolutely not. I'm committed to working for you, uh, you know, for the rest of my life. But what I was thinking is, wow, they're pretty smart people because that's exactly what I was going to do. And uh, uh, never got a job, uh, stayed there for six months finally decided I can't sleep in my truck anymore. I'm going to go back to uh, Canada. And uh, uh, a good friend of mine, Simon Menzies, who was also a, an alcohol funny car racer, worked for Simpson Products at the time. He, um, he said, hey, uh, Pete Williams uh, is, is quitting the Chi-Town Hustler. He's not going to drive for them anymore. And they're looking for a new driver. I said, well, that's a really big team. It's a good car. Uh, I can't imagine they would hire, you know, uh, me and he said, well, send a resume anyway. So I put one together and sent it. And, uh, one day I got a call from Austin Coyle and he said, we'd like to talk to you about, uh, about driving our car. And, um, and so I got that job and from there, uh, uh, that was, that was kind of it. Uh, you know, I, I, we went a couple world championships. I went on to drive for, after the Chi Town deal was done for Larry Miner and uh, in, in the Miller Top Fuel Car, uh, Dick LaHaye and Ed McCullough were my teammates. I went on from there to finish out Daryl Gwynn's Coors contract. Uh, had started the driving school, so it, it hasn't been easy. But that was that was the turning point in my career where maybe I would have gone back to Canada and uh, opened a little uh, welding shop or something, and instead. Uh, there's that moment in people's lives when things, the stars align, so to speak, I guess. That is such an awesome story. Like, I, I picture in my mind you guys sitting in the pits looking at your car, like, smoldering and the other teams cooking hot dogs. And you're like, man, that definitely looks like a lot of fun. 
<laughs> it was better than what we were doing. <laughs> yeah, you're like, I'm kind of tired of this. Let, let's try to like actually, you know, do that. And that to me, like, there, there's so much in that story that really kind of tells the tale about the grit and determination of drag racers. And you know, again, for me, like growing up around the sport. And I remember watching some of those old school VHS tapes and like Steve Evans saying the shy town hustler. And to me, that's like just you hear that name. And if you know that era, it's like you just you light up because, you know, that was like that was the car. Yeah, it was. So it it was so exciting for me because I was given an opportunity to drive a car that the day the day I got there, it was fast. And um we uh, at the time we weren't running any national events. They were just a match race car, and it was kind of near the end of the match race era, which was really the '60s and the '70s. Uh, the the fuel cars were getting expensive to run. The number of national events was exploding across the country, and so there there became fewer and fewer and fewer opportunities to book in two or four or eight nitro funny cars at a local track and charge enough money for everybody to get paid when uh, three weeks later they were going to have uh, the summer nationals in English town. And, and so it was kind of a transitional period, but we just match raced and, and uh, no national events, but we would go to these match races and, 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 the blue max was there and, and, and Prudhomme and McCullough and Billy Meyer and, and Kenny Bernstein and Dale Poldy. And these were the mega stars. I literally had pictures of these guys hanging on my bedroom walls when I was a kid. And now I'm here in a car that I'm not just here with them. I'm here in a car and we're beating them uh, on a, on a weekly basis. And, uh, we did that. We, we, we were mowing them down week to week to week at every little track in the country. And I kept pushing, um, uh, the team. And I said, we, we really, you guys, you realize we could go to one of those national events and we could, we could actually beat these guys at the big show. And, uh, it was always a money thing. And so they said in 1982, I'd been there for two years. Well, we got a little bit of money together. We're going to go to the winter nationals in, in Pomona. And I was so excited. So we go to the winter nationals. <clears throat> this is, we, we run one race, English town, summer nationals the year before, just one national event. That was it. So this was kind of our first national event. And they said, we're going to go to Pomona. We got a couple match races to come back to Chicago. We're going to run. We'll see what happens. We go to Pomona. We're low qualifier, number one. We get to the semifinals and and and, and get beat by Beetle. But it was like a, an amazing weekend. And so we're driving back home, and we're kind of not impressed that we did well, but pleased. And uh, and Pat Minnick, who was one of the original driver of Chi-Town and one of the team owners, he gets a hold of Austin. He said, you know, we're going to get a little bit of money um, – and and uh, we're we're going to go to the Gator Nationals. So that was the second race of the series in '82. And so I was excited. Wow, we're going to go run two of these. We go to the Gator Nationals and we win. First national event I ever won in my life. So we win. And then we decided, well, now we got to go to the next race and the next race. And that's how we went through the season. It was literally one race at a time, and we ended up winning the NHRA World Championship the first year we ever tried to race for it. And, uh, and then next year we decided while we're defending champions, we've got to do it again. And we went back out and won the world championship again. So for, for me, from, you, you got to put this into context from a, a small town in Ontario, Canada, with my parents helping me to get a chance to drive this car and then get a chance to help take this car. That's essentially a match race car put it on to drag racing's biggest stage and go out and not just be okay, but dominate season after season. Uh, I had to pinch myself to see if it was actually true. Oh, it's, so. it's, it's, it's literally the definition of a Cinderella story. You know, that's, yeah. that's what it really comes down to when you, when you hear that and dissect it, that's what it is. Yeah. And, and, and so to, to have lived that, uh, 
I don't know. I just feel very, very privileged. And, you know, I, I think I, obviously I worked really hard, did a good, you know, tried to do a good job, but it's, it's absolutely an, an opportunity that was given to me by Austin Coyle and Pat Minnick and John Farconis to drive their car, uh, to give me such great equipment, all the people that worked on the car, um, no, nobody, nobody does this stuff, you know, by themselves. It just, it doesn't happen. What was it like to work with someone like Austin Coyle, you know, who just seems, you know, to the, to the, to me growing up, you know, he seemed like gruff and tough and I've never had an interaction with him since I've, you know, do the media thing full time, but he just seems like just a, a rough dude. Like just, he's going to tell you what's up sort of like a Dom Perdome kind of deal. Yeah, you're understating how rough and gruff he is. <laughs> yeah, so so it, it, to be very candid, and and you know, I, I would say this if he was sitting here next to me is I couldn't stand the guy for the first two years I drove for him. Um, but it was an opportunity that uh, you know everybody would like to have, and after a while, it's not. I'm not. I don't have a submissive personality, but. After a while, I started to realize, yeah, he's kind of a jerk, but he's a really, really smart jerk. <laughs> you, you get it? And, yeah. And so his his capabilities and his IQ and his intellect and his way of looking at a problem and solving it and just in, in fact, I do some sem I do about three hour seminar as part of our racing school on human performance and winning and, 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 and all this stuff. And, and there's a big part of it where all the way through, I reference stuff I learned from Austin Coyle. Uh, just, he, he's, he wasn't my moral leader in life. He was a guy that knew how to put good people together and how to win. And, and he didn't have, if you're, as you talk about doctors, he didn't necessarily have a good bedside manner. But, boy, could he analyze the problem. And, and uh, his diagnosis skills were amazing. And uh, so, you know, to be a – and I spent five years with him, um, you know, driving down the road and sharing hotel rooms and everything. And uh, uh, a, a, a big big part of my life. Yep. And that makes me want to get John Force on the short show even more to get his take on it because I'm guessing those two are like oil and water with their personalities. Yep. So Yeah, and and they they tolerated each other for a while because actually uh, the last year I drove for him uh, so we'd won back-to-back -back world championships and the team was still running out of money. I mean, it just costs so much money to participate at that level. Uh, and, and, uh, so we, we knew that, um, you know, the team was going to fold up. I mean, the Chi town team and an NHRE tour anywhere was, was going to be disbanded. And, uh, Austin had told me, he said, you know, I've never worked for anybody in my life. And I said, well, right now you're, you're, you're the hottest commodity in our sport. I mean, crew chiefs is where this sport is at and it's where it's going. It's not the drivers. And if you can make one of these cars fast, you could write your own check. And he said, yeah, but I don't know where I would go. Cause everybody that's good, you know, they, they already have crew chiefs. And I said, well, what you need is you need somebody that's a pretty good driver. Um, has been around a while, maybe doesn't run very good, but is a really good promoter and marketer. And he said, who, who, who were you thinking about? And I said, John force. And he said, well, John force doesn't run any good. And I said, that's my point. I said, he doesn't really run any good, but he's always got sponsors. Now, how do you get sponsors and you don't run any good? I said, if he ran fast, <laughs> I said, you guys would be a weapon together. And, uh, so I don't know if that's the first time you'd ever considered that, but, uh, that was a conversation we absolutely had, uh, uh, before he had ever gone to work for John. Wow. That's, that's, you talk about another pivotal moment in history. You know, you had yours and then you hook those two up and they go through then to just basically, you know, smash the funny car ranks for, you know, almost 20 years straight. Yep. Yep. And, um, which I didn't have any doubt of, of two things that Austin would continue to dominate from a performance standpoint and that force could figure out how to make, how to monetize that somehow. Yeah, th th that's definitely something. And, 
you know, it, it's always interesting when you when you deal with John and you 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 see a media person ask him a question, and it's like you throw a grenade, and you're just going to see where it goes. That's that's pretty much how that conversation goes. Yeah, yeah, and uh, but but force is. Uh... He's, he's just a world-class guy. I, I, I know that, uh, you know, everybody has an opinion of, of who he is or what he is. And, and uh, I, I, I want to take just a second to compliment him. We've all of his drivers that he's ever had, Robert Height and just everybody, all his girls, uh, Austin Proc, everybody, you know, he sent them all to us to, to train them before they ever drove in the fuel cars. So we've worked with him really closely over the years. He is a world-class person. Um, if John Force is one of those guys that if you shake hands, that's the contract. And I think that's a dying breed. Um, he's, he's honorable. Um, he's anyway, I I'm, I'm a huge fan of John Force, not as a driver, not, not that he's not a good driver, but as, as a person, he's, uh, he's pretty good people. And kind of going off of that, you know, you've probably got to interact with him, you know, both on the track and then in front of the camera as well, because how did, how did you end up kind of becoming a, an analyst? How'd that come about? Uh, as far as uh, the TV stuff? Yeah, yeah. How did, how, yeah. how did that come about? Well, I'd done a little bit of stuff for some independent things over the years where they said, uh, and this is way back when I was driving for Austin, there'd be you know, a, a small program put together and they said, we're looking for a race car guy. And, and so, uh, you know, can he speak in sentences? Uh, and, and, you know, can you, can you put him in a sport jacket? And they said, yeah. So I got a couple little things. And then Steve Evans was actually a, a good friend of mine. And he was one of the guys that, that got me some help on, on a few things. And, uh, I worked, uh, gosh, I can't even remember the name of the show now, but they were, this is funny. It's 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 a paid commercial show where, you know, they, they, it's it's about car products, um, and um, there's three segments on it, and they're sold, pre-sold, and then they put the show on as though it's an informative. It's an infomercial kind of thing. So he got me this deal, and um, uh, to to work on the show, and and uh, I, I worked with him on it. And anyway, he. Uh, we, we looked at the first show and, and, uh, there were three different products on there. And, and I don't want to say what this one product was because I, I don't want to, don't want to trash it. But I, I said to him, this is, we're going to do a whole segment on this, this thing. Right. He goes, yeah. And I said, how do you do a segment on this? Like, who cares? Who, what, what is my, and I'm not talking like I'm an actor or something cause I'm not, but, I said, what, what is my motivation to get excited about this segment? How am I supposed and, to put lipstick on this pig? Yeah, kind of. And, and he, he looked and he says to me, you got a boat, right? I said, yeah. He says, would you like a bigger boat someday? I said, yeah. He said, that's your motivation. <laughs> <laughs> that's funny, right? Yeah, that's, it works. <laughs> it's like, it's like, grow up, kid. Uh, let's get to work. And so I did some of that and then I got to do some diamond P stuff cause I, but, but it was all a part of, you know, I knew Dave McClellan real well, but Steve was, uh, was the guy that got me any stuff I got and we just got along and, and laughed a lot. And he was just an amazing storyteller and it's like so many things in life. It's, it's, uh, it's personal relationships. And, you know, the other thing, of course, you're known for is the driving school. And I'm, I'm kind of interested to, to know this. How did you decide to, you know, I'm, I'm going to open up a drag racing school. This seems like the, the way to go. How, how did that come about? Well, so it's back to California, uh, Chi-Town uh, era. Uh, we, we ended up, once we started running the, the NHRA races, the last race of the season was back then at Orange County. And the first race was at Pomona. And rather than, you know, go all the way back to Chicago for, you know, three months or whatever, um, we decided, hey, would you rather hang out here in Southern California for the winter or Chicago? And we all voted. It was unanimous. <laughs> and and uh, so we, we found a place to stay. And, and uh, I, I've always liked all kinds of racing. Uh, and I always thought, you know, I looked at, wow, what, 
man, I, I wonder if I'd got into Indy cars, if I ever could have driven one of those cars. And, and I like the open wheel cars. So Jim Russell, British School of Motor Racing, had a Formula Ford school at the old Riverside track in California. And back then there were, there were, uh, there was uh, Jim Russell's uh, Formula Ford school. Uh, uh, Skip Barber had a Formula Ford school and Bob Bondurant had a sedan school like passenger cars. They had Mustangs. They were the only three racing schools in the country. And I went to the Jim Russell school, uh, did, you know, went through their class, did what they called lapping days where you come back and pay money and just practice, drove in some of their series races. Uh, and um, that's when I realized, wow, uh, um, my, my aspirations of wanting to drive an Indy car got cured because I'm going down the S's of the front straightaway at Riverside as fast as I think is humanly possible. And a 14 year old kid passed me and I, I thought, don't quit your day job. Okay. <laughs> that funny car gigs a pretty good deal. Yeah. So at any rate, I started thinking, wow, I wonder if anybody would want to uh, learn how to drive a drag race car. And so we, um, that, that, that was the impetus for the drag racing school. And um, we, you know, it was a, a long kind of struggle. And I had to raise some money from a, a number of investors to buy cars, and secure a lease with the racetrack, which is, you know, Gainesville Raceway, which is still our home here in Gainesville, Florida. Um, and uh, about a year after we'd started it, I got a call and uh, and uh, whoever answered the phone said, there's somebody on the phone. Uh, he said he's a stock car racer, Buck Baker. And and I said, the, the famous, world-famous Buck Baker stock car guy? He goes, yeah. So I got on the phone. He said, he introduced himself. I said, I know who you are. And he said, uh, so how's that, that drag school thing going? And I said, uh, well, it's got its ups and downs, but, you know, we're still here and we got some customers. And he said, uh, I'm thinking of starting uh, a stock car school. And that was the first ever uh, oval tracker stock car school. And, and, you know, of course, if you fast forward 30 years, you, there's, there's racing schools everywhere across the country. So we were basically about the fourth and Buck Baker was the fifth. And then it kind of exploded from there, but that's, that's how we got started. And when we started, uh, I didn't have any realization that, you know, 35 years later, uh, we'd, we'd be going as strong and bigger and better than we ever were when we, when we got started. So it's been an amazing ride. You know, how much has it changed for you kind of how you first started teaching the school to now, because, you know, cars and technology and everything else, you know, definitely changes, you know, how have you guys adapted your tactics to, to, you know, the modern race world? And, you know, if you think about even like modern education techniques, well, first, when we started, I knew nothing. I was I was not a, a good instructor at all. Uh, basically, I could sum up uh, I could sum it up this way: I knew how to drive. You apparently don't. Therefore, you must be stupid. And and that was the course, uh, which which is not a very good product. Um, and and along the way, I I'm I've always been interested in psychology and human behavior and human performance. And I started looking and thinking, wow, uh, I, I didn't know anybody that couldn't drive a car. I, I drew drag race cars my uh, drove drag race cars my entire life. Um, and we've got really accomplished people here. They're bright people. They, they've done all kinds of other things in their life. They're pilots and doctors and engineers and mechanics, and, and they have difficulty. Why? And so I started to study that, and, and uh, you know, it, it's brought us to the point where we've been for the last, you know, decade or so, which the program now uh, isn't about cars. And everybody thinks it's about cars. Uh, our program's about people, and it's about uh, taking you and and uh, uh, having you in in a, a very uncomfortable, unfamiliar situation, uh, understanding what all of your problems are going to be, and and um, and and what the solutions are, and how you're going to fix those problems by yourself. Uh, uh, most all of our lectures in the classroom are about human performance. They're about how we think and act and behave and perform. Um, and, you know, do we teach how to drive a car and shift it and 
use the steering wheel and stage. Uh, absolutely. Uh, but what almost every one of our customers say is that they learn so much more than they ever thought they would learn. And most of it could be applied to other things in life. So we essentially use the drag racing platform to share with people stuff that I think I've learned in my life that has allowed me to be better at everything in my life. Um, and, and so that's, that's how the course has evolved. So little bits of technological differences are, are, are small things to overcome in relation to how we've grown and what we teach and how we teach it. Now, here's a question that might, you know, apply to some of our listeners. I'd be kind of interested to see if this is possible as well. You know, every racer, one of the themes I see is they, they evolve. There's certain racers just evolve and they start going faster and faster. And sometimes you get to that point where you, uh, you might have bit off more than you can chew. Is that something where a racer could come to you guys and get an education off? You know, if they've got like a radial tire car, you guys could help them kind of, you know, not only get a license, but just get better at driving that car? Uh, so we do have a program where you can bring your own car to our school and um, we can uh, we, we can give you some assistance we 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 tell everybody we're not we're not going to have enough time to fix a car that's screwed up uh, you know um, in other words we don't we we've got a class with 12 or 16 or 18 people in it and and uh, we're going to make 100 runs with this class in the next two days so we don't have enough time individually we're not a mechanic school that's what i was gonna say we're not we're not mechanics here yeah and, and well we do have mechanics but we're not here to fix somebody's car but when they come to the school, we can watch them drive their car, make some uh, uh, suggestions to them. But again, it's, it's, it's difficult to explain, but most of what everybody gets out of the program is going to be stuff that they didn't think they were coming for. Um, and, and, um, and it becomes useful in, in, in a lot of different things that you do. But for somebody to come down and say, oh, my, my car rips the tires off or turns right when it shifts, uh, Frank's going to fix it. That, that's not what we're going to do. <laughs> yeah, but not my uh, problem. <laughs> and, and, but if, 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 if you're anxious about that, if you're not sure what to do, if you're not sure how to fix your problems, if you're not sure if the problem's you or the car or the track, um, um, if, if, you, if you get angry about it, if, if those sorts of things, that's, that's what we work on. We work on people uh, more than we work on cars. And I know that sounds kind of vague and maybe a little corny to some people. Uh, but if you can ever find anybody that's been to one of our programs, they might be able to explain it even better than I do. Oh, our uh, creative director, Scott Parker, has been to it as well. I think, you know, that's where he got his, I think he got his 990 license or quicker mm -hmm. with you guys. And yeah. to me, that sounds, you know what that sounds a lot like? Mechanical golf. Golf's a lot in your head. And it's the same yep. thing almost with drag racing. That if you take the car, like you guys provide a car that's mechanically sound, you improve people's abilities through non-mechanical means. Yep, yep. I mean, I think that's that's a pretty good description. And the fact that it's it's uh, it's all psychological, um, notwithstanding the car. Okay, uh, it is all psychological. Oh, totally. <laughs> I mean, uh, you know, if it's 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 not age related, it's not gender specific. It it is motorsports in general and drag racing specifically is is a gender neutral race neutral age neutral it's neutral okay this this isn't anything about uh anything other than how you're thinking and uh that's you know that's that's why we've got 25 percent of all our enrollment are female uh every almost every good uh, woman drag racer in the United States is a graduate of ours. Uh, how do we treat them uh, like anybody else? We don't treat anybody uh, any more favorably or any less favorably. Everybody is just a person that's there to learn. Um, we have uh, age. If, if, uh, if, if this was uh, 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 like 
football, okay? Uh, you know, there's a certain age where, you know, everybody's talking about how old Tom Brady is. And my gosh, how could he still play when he's in his 40s? Uh, and yet we've got really good 60-year-old drag racers, thousands of them. Uh, so it's, it's not a physical thing. And that's one of the things I think um, you don't have to be big and strong that I think is really, really cool about our sport is, is um, it just eliminates all those other barriers that some people think they have in competing in other types of sports. One of the things I notice, and it, you know, talking to a lot of high-level bracket racers, and it's right down that to the mental game, those guys are stone-cold killers. They have their mental routine that they go to. It doesn't matter how fast the car is, but they are so mentally sharp and in the game that there could be someone could try to drag them out of their routine and it doesn't work. It's only going to make life miserable for you because you cannot shake those guys. And again, it, it's all mental. They they know what yep. they're going to do and they're going to they're going to make it happen no matter what you do over in the other lane. They're not worried. Yep. Yep. Ab- absolutely. We're. Where the uh, and and some of the, the the things you're bringing up here, I've got like a half hour part of the lecture on those specific things, but uh, yeah, we, we you know we 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 go into great detail on uh, unconscious and, and conscious thought or cognitive thought and what the differences are and how we perceive them and why we need to be unconscious and all of our stuff, which gets back to routine and, and uh, all the limitations we have with cognitive thought. That's, that's why the routines are so crucial to those people. Uh, and, and you have to have them in, in order to be, uh, to be successful. You can't just be willy nilly at, uh, at everything you want to do. So you're and, and, and whether any of those really good racers could, articulate uh, the, the stuff that I'm talking about or we teach or not doesn't matter. Okay. But they can do it and being able to do it is, is ultimately the only thing that matters. Oh, and, you know, working on a team, that's one of the things where we have a routine that we do in the pits. We have the routine we do at the car, you know, when we race and it's one of those things where, you know, you go through that routine every time and then it gets to the point where, if something happens, you know what you need to do to get you back into that routine. If, you know, there's an issue with the car, all right, well, we got to make sure we turn the data logger back on. Is everything turned back on? You got to make sure you do all that stuff. And that's what kept us in some, it kept us in races where something bad happened. And, you know, they always say, you know, your training will save you. You don't panic. You're like, all right, well, you know, let's just back it up half a step and let's go forward and we'll be good to go. That's, that's how you got to do it. You're absolutely right. Now, before we go here, I got one last question for you, and I love to hit racers with this question. It's my favorite question. If you could drive any other race car than what you normally, you know, did, nitro stuff and whatnot, you know, what would you jump behind the wheel of a pro mod, a radial tire car, no prep car? What's the one thing that you're just like, I got to drive one of those? Uh, well, I got my pro stock license years ago. Never raced it, just had an opportunity. Got my pro mod license years ago. Um, didn't um, didn't ever race it, just got my license because I was presented with the opportunity. Uh, as far as exciting stuff to drive, um, you know, I've, I've, I've always been, a, you know, solid mount, you know, center steer kind of guy, funny car dragster guy. So that's, that's really where my comfort zone is. But... Um, if, if I had something that I wish I was good at is I'd like to be able to think that I could go to the million dollar race and, and be, and win it and be like the finest bracket racer in the world. Uh, and I know that if I wanted to do that, it would take me years to develop the skills that those guys have. Um, but uh, so, yeah, that might sound uh, like a different answer, but it, it would be great to, to feel like I had the skills that those guys have. Oh, no, that completely caught me off guard. But that's an awesome answer, to say the least, that, you know, you that that would be something that you'd want to do that. You know, it's it's funny. A lot of times you hear guys say that they want to do the nitro stuff or they want to, you know, go crazy fast. And you want to be able to go through and do, you know, what I call, you know, motorsports surgical strikes you know that- yeah i i i want to be good i i i i, I, I want to be technical i want to be accurate i want to be precise um 
I want to feel at the end of the day that, you know, surgical is a good, good term that you used. And, and those guys are able to do that. And, um, and, uh, I'm not saying I couldn't, I couldn't today. I probably couldn't this year. Uh, you know, but, um, uh, yeah, so that, that, that'd be something I would like to, if I could just snap my fingers and have a skill, uh, that, that as far as drag racing goes, that'd probably be it. Yeah, definitely. Those guys, you, you watch a, a good bracket racer and they will smash someone in the head with a good reaction time and then go steal their soul at the top end at the stripe. And it's, it's like artwork to watch in my opinion. Yep. Yep. I have a lot of admiration for them. Well, Frank, our time is uh, winding down here, and I like to give my guests their opportunity to do their to ironically do their best John Force impersonation, and you know, thank all their sponsors and where to find people at. So, uh, I'll turn the floor over to you, and you can uh, pontificate who, where people can find you, and you know, all that fun stuff. So, uh, fire away, my friend. Well, yeah, and, and Brian, it's been good uh, chatting with you. Um, <clears throat> You know, we get a kick out of what we do at the driving school. Like I said, we've been at it for over three decades. We've got uh, 30,000 customers, uh, graduates across the country. So you probably can't go to a racetrack where you, you can't uh, find uh, one of our graduates. But, uh, you know, if somebody just Googles my name, Frank Hawley, um, it, we, we pop up everywhere. Uh, our website's just frankholly.com. And, uh, you know, we've got a website. we got people that can answer the telephones, uh, talk to you about our programs, where we are, where we're going. And, um, you know, if anybody ever thought uh, um, they'd, they'd like to do something like that, um, we'd, uh, we'd love to have them. Well, there you go, the racers that listen to us. If you want to become a stone-cold killer, go visit Mr. Holly and uh, get, learn how to be that, that mental zen master and whatnot. But uh, definitely appreciate you coming on the show, Frank. All right, thanks. Good good talk with you. Well, that wraps up the show for this week. Thanks for Frank for stopping by. And as always, may your reaction times be crisp and your wind lights bright. Until next week, folks. <laughs>